0: Good to see you can we please stand up yeah oh yeah we're gonna sing songs of victory and songs of praise hallelujah all right all together now can we sing this is a good morning to have church, to be here in the house. I like, I like what the psalmist says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Can we just do that real quick? Let's exalt the name of Jesus. Hey! Something special happens when we come together on a Sunday to exalt Jesus. Number one, I think there's a faith that just kind of builds and rises up within each of us. And number two, when we're exalting the name of Jesus, guess what? We're not doing it alone. Actually, the Spirit of the Lord is here. The One in whom we're exalting, His presence is actually here. So I just think that's kind of cool. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> oh Jesus, we love you. Well, friends, it's it's uh, it's uh, already a beautiful morning. This is our second service, and we can already sense that God is here. That anxiety is being driven. From this place. Well, before we continue with singing, I want to introduce a friend of mine that's singing with us on stage. She is the executive director of 10K FAM, that stands for 10,000 Fathers and Mothers Worship School, here in Colorado Springs. Could you all just give it up for my friend Lauren Sentambrini? Oh, I got to make someone feel awkward on stage. Might as well be Lauren. <laughs> Okay, let's recenter, let's recalibrate, let's put our affections and our attention on Jesus Christ and his greatness. The greatness of his love, the greatness of his power, the greatness of his forgiving spirit, the greatness of who he is. Friends, can we read Psalms 145 as a prayer today for our call into worship? Let's read together. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, church, and we say Thanks be to God. Let's continue to worship God with all that we have.
1: Yes.
2: Let's keep worshiping.
0: Children say, Great are you, Lord. We magnify you, Lord Jesus, here together. We exalt your holy name.
3: Then sings
0: my song. continue to sing that. Then sings
3: my soul How great
4: our God who has remained faithful from generation to generation to generation. This morning we lift our voices with the song of heaven.
5: Say that with me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That is who you are, holy God. Y'all, his presence is in this place. Father, we feel your presence in this place. It is almost tangible. Holy Spirit, your work is welcomed here. Holy Spirit, your work is welcomed in this place. But it's not enough for me to just say that about this place. You have to welcome the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So if you're in that space, if you wouldn't mind just kind of opening your hands and closing your eyes and saying to yourself, Holy Spirit, you are welcome to work in my life. Come do a deep work in our lives. I also sense there's a grace in this place to hear the voice of the Lord. So I want to just take a moment. We're going to keep the music going. And I just want you to posture your heart and open your ear and say, Holy Spirit, what do you want to say to me? He may give you a word that you're needing to hear for you. He may give you a word for somebody else that you can go share during break time or after. But just take a moment and let's let the Holy Spirit speak. He's speaking right now. love over your children father I pray that your children would hear that they are yours speak identity over your sons and daughters in this place speak a word of wholeness speak a word of hope speak a word of healing oh by the voice of the Holy Spirit trauma can be healed By the voice of the Holy Spirit, bodies and minds can be healed. Families can be healed just by one word of your Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit.
6: As we were in worship, I just felt this phrase drop into my spirit. Son, I'm troubling the waters. Some of you may immediately know what that means. I went to John chapter 5. Scripture says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the festivals. And there is in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And they waited for the moving or the troubling of the waters. For from time to time, an angel would come from the Lord and he would stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well and serve? The invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and he walked. And what I, what I saw, I think that there are some here in this room that you find yourself in a place where you just need a touch from God today. Maybe it is not as severe as an invalid who has been unable to move, immobile, and paralyzed for 38 years. But maybe from a metaphor standpoint, it's similar, where you just feel like I'm stuck. My marriage is stuck. My finances are stuck. My faith is stuck. My spiritual life and power is stuck. My vibrancy in God is stuck. And this is what I saw. I just saw inviting you to come up here to this front right here, just packing it all in. And then the rest of us, we're just gonna stretch forth our hands and we're gonna just be behind you. It's gonna be like the opposite of the pull. It's not the first that gets in, it's everybody who gets in. And we're all gonna just rally behind you. And so if that's you today, I just wanna open this altar up. I wanna open this space up. I wanna invite you to come. And we're gonna just rally behind you. We're gonna be an army and a family of strength. We're gonna release the power, the presence, the grace of God. You are not alone. God is fighting on your behalf and you have a people here who are fighting on your behalf with you. Come on here, bring it in real tight. Just come all the way up to the stairs. Take it into the aisles if you need to. Now, brothers and sisters, if you're not in that place where you're saying this, I'm in a critical and acute season of my life, you're blessed. And so out of the strength of your blessing, would you just stretch forth your hands to your brothers and sisters today? And here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna pray over them, but we're also gonna sing over them. And Seth, I just want you to take that that chorus. Your name is higher. Your name is greater. We're gonna just declare the greatness of God. We're gonna declare the ability of God. We're gonna magnify the power of God. We're gonna sing over you. Let me pray real quick, Lord, in the name of Jesus god i thank you that you are a god who is always at work that you're not a god who gives us stories from the past so that we can look at and so that we can long for something that is not available god you show us what is available in you and so god i am praying today that the water level of faith would rise lord i'm praying today that the heavens would be open that the waters would be stirred that the power of the holy spirit would be unleashed upon my brothers and sisters today, God, that you would move things that seem like they're immovable. God, that you would do the impossible, that the miraculous power of God would be demonstrated on behalf of your sons and daughters today. All right, all across this church, let's lift up our voice and let's declare that you're mm, all thrones and dominions.
5: The magic isn't in the altar. Magic isn't in the kneeling. It's not in the lifting of the hands. The, it's in the surrendered heart. It's in the desperate heart. It's in the heart that says, I can't unless you. I can't, but you can. And that's where our hearts are at today, Father. We place our trust We place our faith, we place our hope, even our disappointment and our anxiety and our pain, we place it before you. The only one who can redeem and move in it all. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name. I'm just reminded of the scripture in the Beatitudes that says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst." because they will be filled. Never lose your hunger. Never lose your thirst. In Jesus' name. You're welcome to stay up here a little bit longer if you want, but we are going to just go into our time of giving. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says that we love... Because he first loved us. We love our neighbor because God first loved us. We love God because he first loved us. And we give because he's first given to us. Everything in the Christian life, you guys, is a response to what God has already done. It's a response to his goodness that he has already poured out. And that's not anything that we initiate it's just something we respond to so when we give this morning let's give out of a response of faith and understanding that all that we have even what we have to give is a response to what he has given to us if you're giving this morning there are four ways to give those are up on the screen we just ask that if you're giving on the app or online that you would click down and put new life midtown if this is your home church This is not your home church welcome. We are so thankful that you're here this morning. We are just praying and believing that you got a word today. Something happens when we get that word. Something to cling to. Something to hold on to in the midst of trials and tribulations. So we're just thankful that you're here with us today. We're going to not do the the liturgy prayer over the giving, but we are going to go ahead and pray over our children and release them to their classes. So If you're new, the words will be up on the screen, but we're just gonna pray the perfect prayer that Jesus gave us, the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Kids, you are dismissed. Family, we're going to take a moment and just hug each other's necks, look each other in the eye and come back and receive a great word. Amen.
7: I serve in the toddlers, my name is Ross Norwood.
4: I
8: serve in pre-K, I'm Natalie Norwood. I love seeing your children, I love the activities we have, I love the message and the teaching, and I love all the silly jokes
4: that they tell me.
7: They called me grass for a very long time. Um, I don't know where that came about, and so I think it was like two months, like it was a long time. I even started to call myself grass at one point. Finally, um, it came around that it was Ross, and I think that that goes the same for anything that we're teaching and, and doing in that classroom. I think the sweetest thing is learning how they see the world and learning how they learn.
8: When I first signed up for kids ministry, I was actually like really like uncomfortable and I felt really like unqualified. And so again, kind of shadowing and learning under really good teachers, I became more comfortable and I realized mm-hmm. I found a true passion for it. And I love getting to know them and then also like watching them grow, like from four to five and into kindergarten and then like receiving the three-year-olds like it's been such a joy to serve
7: hmm. i think there's a difference between babysitting and watching over kids and teaching them and um and grounding them in scripture and the impact that we have children at such a young age as their brain is hearing that information and and sometimes we don't know if they're really registering or if it's really landing but it is Mm -hmm. that's like why I really just love it is the impact and the ability that uh, a two-year-old looks at you and they're able to somewhat comprehend Jesus that to me is a victory and that's why I I do it and that's why I think you should too
8: if you think that you're not gonna be good at this like take some time and like
4: just go for it and see because it's been like such a joy Thank you so much, Ross and Natalie, and thank you to everyone who's serving in Kids Ministry. If you're interested in getting involved, having so much fun on Sundays, getting to know kids in our church, and passing on the message of Jesus to the children of our church, please come and see us here in Fireside. We would love to connect with you and tell you a little bit more about serving in Kids Ministry here at New Life Midtown. Next up, we've got just a couple of announcements. First off, we are really excited. We're going to be collaborating with our friends from New Life Downtown to bring you the Advent Night of Worship and Prayer. It's going to be on Wednesday, December 13th, so be sure to mark your calendars and join us that Wednesday it's gonna be an awesome night with our friends from downtown and next up is pie Sunday the Sunday after Thanksgiving every year we have this amazing tradition where everyone brings pie and we fellowship between services so if you come to 9 a.m. stay a little bit later and eat some pie and if you come to 11 a.m. come a little bit earlier and eat some pie it's gonna be a great time together we can't wait
1: that smells so good
4: really So come out next Sunday for Pie Sunday. (laughs) Thanks for watching.
6: That's rude, y'all. That's just straight up rude. They tried to get me to do it. I said, no, I'm not doing that. I am not doing that. You know, there's actually statistics that, uh, you know, when a, a guy and a girl get married and they feed each other cake. There's actually statistics that are out that if you like shove that cake in your like immediate spouse's face, uh, it's not going to last very long. Like like true, true deal. Like real statistics, man, for that. Hey, I wanted to lean in a couple of these announcements and just give a little bit of more uh, development to these announcements. The first is this Advent night of worship. Some of you are like, what is Advent? Advent is the season of time. You guys just do whatever you need there. Take, Take your time, do whatever you need to. To Take care of that. I'm going to just keep moving forward. You let us know what we need. Advent is the season of time that marks in the Christian church calendar, the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And so what we're doing is in the middle of that Advent season, we're going to have a night where old carols meet modern day worship. And it's just going to be like one of our regular Wednesday nights of worship where we're going, to, we're going to pray and we're going to worship, but it's going to be around these Advent carols matched up with these modern worship songs. It's going to be really, really amazing. The second thing that I want to hit today that I didn't get to last Sunday, if you recall, before I started preaching, I had mentioned that we had a very important announcement. <clears throat> How are we doing, Kim? Okay. Everybody just stretch forth your hands if you would right now. Lord, we thank you for your peace. Lord, we thank you for your comfort. Father, we thank you for your healing grace and your healing power right now. Lord, would you be near, heal, strengthen our brother. Lord, give those administering care, give them wisdom, give them quick and immediate discernment. Spirit of the living God, minister your grace, minister your healing, minister your strength. Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Thank you, church. So last week I had mentioned an announcement that I had not gotten to. We just jumped into the preaching train, and then at the end of service someone said, Pastor, you said you were going to announce something, and you never did. And uh, you're right. That's what happens when I just jump into that flow before we, we take care of all the logistical stuff. I wanted you to be aware of a special offering that we are going to be doing in conjunction with with the North Campus and several of our other New Life churches. If you're new to our family of churches, there are actually eight New Life churches in the city of Colorado Springs. And several years ago, when our lead pastor at New Life North, Brady Boyd, stepped into the senior pastor position, he actually inherited $26 million of debt, which I came to find out uh, over the course of time was actually hundreds of thousands of dollars in a mortgage payment a month. And so last year, at the beginning of 2022, the elders of New Life and Pastor Brady felt a very strong conviction from the Lord that we were supposed to get aggressive about paying that debt down. Last year, at the beginning of 2022, there was $9 million left, and now there's two. And so I know it's amazing. So we're like almost at the finish line. And one of the ways that we have partnered with that word to get that thing completely eradicated is by taking up what we're calling legacy offerings. Now, these are free will offerings. Obviously, nothing that we do in this church is by obligation or by coercion. This is an opportunity that we are choosing at Midtown to participate with. They're not even asking us to do this. This is not something that the elders are even asking all the eight congregations to do. They're saying, we are going to do this, and if you want to participate in this, we want to make that available to you. And when I became aware of this several months ago, actually, I just felt a real agreement in my spirit. This is something that we are, we are to participate with. Um, from a metaphor standpoint, it's like, it's like the kids giving back to mom and dad so that mom and dad could be even, even in a stronger position to continue strengthening and blessing the kids. And it just is this beautiful upward cycle um, of blessing and flourishing. So we're going to be receiving that offering in two weeks. Next week, I'm going to give a little bit more direction on just the logistics of that, because what we don't want is, we actually don't want to give that online. We want to do a physical offering. We're going to bring that forward. And my encouragement to you is beyond the tithe or the offering that you bring to Midtown, would you at least pray and think about if the Lord might be inviting you to participate in this legacy offering as a, as an act of solidarity, as an act of faith, and also as an act of blessing that the Lord would just completely take that, that weight, that oppressive weight of debt off of that house so that the Lord could even move our entire family of churches into further works of God in our city and beyond. So I want to make you aware of that. All right, beloved Christ is risen. Amen. Honestly, and we say this from time to time, but today I really feel it. Like we really could pack up and go home right now. Like the spirit and the presence of the Lord were very, very present and at work in a very unique way. And what we always want to do, we want to posture ourselves in this house in such a manner that we are, that we are discerning, that we're receptive and that we're responsive to the movement of the Holy Spirit. Like our gathering of church, our our liturgy is shaped not in a static way. In other words, we don't just script things out and we expect God to fit in the box of what we have already predetermined. Like we're excellent, we plan, we have some of the most high caliber, high grade people on this staff who exert their skill set and their time and their energy to making sure that what we do is not sloppy, it's good, it's purposeful. But friends, all of that is always plan B. Like we take our best planning and we take our best talents and we take our best abilities and we bring our best selves into this space. And then we say, Lord, whatever you want to do with that is completely up to you. And there are moments like today when we just say, man, we feel like the Lord is inviting those who need a special touch to come forward. And I love that we have a cultural of participation, that we have a house of believers that can connect our faith in agreement with that. And we can expect that the Lord is doing something with just that extra step of faith and obedience. And it's not that he can't do it without that, but if you look throughout the scriptures, God is always, he's just constantly inviting us to do things that we really can't seem to put in a box or understand. Like, did Naaman really have to go into that dirty pool and did he really have to wash himself seven times? Probably not, God's God, he could do whatever he wanted to, but he wanted Naaman to go and wash, right? On and on and on it goes. So thank you so much for being a a house that can move with the rhythms uh, of the invitations of the Holy Spirit. All right, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, this morning to the book of 1 Kings. We're going to look at chapter 18, and we're going to bounce back and forth, depending on how much traction I get, from 18 to 17 and then to 19. Now, I'm just going to forewarn you, in the first service, I only got through two points out of my six. Which means that I've got at least four that I've got to catch up with with you guys. Uh, it's, just, it's just part of being second service, you guys. We don't have another service to, like, force me to end. You guys are nervous. Like, the new people are like, what is happening around here? And he's like, And he's also rolling up his sleeves. We always know what that means. All right, let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. And, Lord, we thank you that you are present. That you're the God who is alive. That you are the God of Israel, you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're the God of Jesus. You're the God of the Holy Spirit, you've poured out your spirit on the day of Pentecost, and you are continuing to pour out your spirit every single day of our lives. You're the God who holds our lives and our world together, you're the God whose word is more sure and more certain and more powerful than any other word that we could hear or that we could speak. God, we thank you that you are a God of dunamis, that you're a God of power, that you're not an impotent God, that you're not a weak God, that you're not aloof, that you're not indifferent, you're not passive, Lord. that you are actively involved, that you care deeply about each and everything that concerns us. You even said it like this, that you know how many hairs are on our head. Lord, you know everything that concerns us. And so today we invite the sovereignty of God, we invite the the lordship of Jesus, we invite the power of the Holy Spirit to come and do what only you can do today. Bring revelation, rearrange paradigms, Lord, break down internal hindrances and obstacles even within our own selves. God, bring us into wholeness, bring us into alignment with the flow and the work of your spirit. And God, move us, thrust us even into freedom today. Would you do it in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. All right, so for those of you who might be joining us today for the first time, we're actually on the very last sermon of a 17-week series on the book of 1 Kings. We have titled this Kings and Kingdoms, and we've taken a look at the narrative book of First Kings. Now we cheated a little bit and went actually back into First and Second Samuel to get the prequel. But the objective of this series very simply was to learn from the lessons that God was teaching the people of Israel through the administration of positions of power in the lives of kings. So we started with the life of this young mom who was barren and she cried out for a son. And her name was Hannah, and the Lord answered her prayer by releasing unto her womb a prophet that was going to set things in motion for the flourishing and for the future of the nation of Israel. Samuel grew up to be Israel's first national prophet, and he, by the authority of God, set Saul into place who was Israel's first king. He was succeeded by by a man by the name of David, who many of us know who demonstrated faith in God and destroyed a giant by the name of Goliath. And he was established as the second king. And he was known to be a man who was after God's own heart. He loved God deeply and passionately. Most of the Psalms that we find in the Old Testament were written by David. Out of the kind of secret place of his own private devotion in God, he pulls these things out. And many of these psalms became the worship songs of the nation of Israel, unifying them around the presence of God and unifying them around devotion to God. David's son Solomon, we know, is a man who asked for the wisdom of God and started off his journey well in wisdom, but ended his journey very poorly because his heart was turned away from God because he had given his affection over to a thousand wives. 700 legitimate, well, as legitimate as you can be beyond one, and 300 concubines. Those are the illegitimate ones. Solomon has a son by the name of Rehoboam who starts off his journey with a measure of promise. Rehoboam is approached by counsel, by a group of counselors, and they said, Hey, Rehoboam, now that you're king, we want you to know that your dad was actually a little rough. He kind of ruled a little strictly, a little harshly. And so we're asking you to kind of lighten up a little bit. And Rehoboam said, give me three days. Let me think and pray. Let me talk with people. And so he talked with wise counselors and they said, you know what? They got a point. In fact, if you will show yourself to be a servant leader and use your power and your authority to bless the people, to help them flourish, they will serve you for the rest of your life. And he said, "Hmm, let me think about it. And they went over, and he called up his homies, and he was like, hey, guys, we've been growing up together for a really long time. What do you think? And they're like, man, those guys are knuckleheads. Like, you you need to flex your muscle right now. And if they think your dad was bad, you need to show them who's really in charge. And so Rehoboam comes back. He begins his journey with promise, but then he makes a really bad turn in his leadership. And essentially what happens is there is a split in the nation of Israel, 12 tribes. Are split in half. Okay, this is, they're not split in half. Ten tribes go with one king by the name of Jeroboam, and two tribes stick with Rehoboam. After Rehoboam, we find that there is now a man by the name of Jeroboam who is the king of the ten tribes of Israel. Rehoboam is over the two tribes of Judah. And Jeroboam is over the 10 tribes of Israel. And Jeroboam sets something in motion for the nation of Israel that has drastic and devastating consequences for the life of the people of Israel until they go into exile. And here's what he does. He completely alters the system of worship. He completely alters where they worship, how they worship, what they worship, when they worship, and who mediates their worship. And he does this out of this sense of convenience. Let's make worship easy. Guys, listen, you've heard me say this many times, but worship is, the, the very word worship does not carry the connotation of easy. That'd be like saying marathon, easy marathons. Uh, easy divorce, right? There are certain things that are just not easy. And worship is not easy, Right? Inherent within the very nature and the concept of worship is the notion of sacrifice, devotion, time. Something that is so worth your energy, your affection, your attention, your devotion that you're willing to lay down and sacrifice anything that is required of you to demonstrate how much this thing is worth to you. That's what worship is. And so when Jeroboam alters the fundamental nature of worship, It begins to set in motion for those 10 tribes of Israel this cascading journey of falling further and further and further away from God. So that what you find is that there is a string of kings after Jeroboam that really the amount of space the scripture gives to them is really just a few paragraphs and it essentially says they did wrong, they were wicked, and then they died. And then another, another one came up and they did wrong and they were wicked and then they died. And we find the culmination of this pattern in the man by the name of Ahab, who marries a woman by the name of Jezebel. And Ahab Ahab's not slick about this. He's not trying to be subversive. He's not trying to get one over. He's not even trying to take these gradual moves. Here's what Ahab does. He's like, we're all in. We're going to take the gods of Sidon by the name of Baal and Asherah, and we're just going to make them our gods. And so what Jeroboam starts in making worship convenient and easy, Ahab finishes by full-on demonic worship. And he leads the people of Israel into full-fledged Baal worship. Now, we had mentioned last week that what is significant about the god Baal is that in the ancient Near East, he was known as the god of fertility. He was was the god who would uh, be over the rain. And so when we find... That the man of God, Elijah, shows up to Ahab and he points his finger at him and he says, it's not going to rain until I say so. This is God through Elijah flexing his muscle over all of the gods that Ahab brought into the nation of Israel. And God is essentially saying that whatever you're looking to, whatever you're hoping to derive from these other gods the source is actually me because I'm the one who sits sovereign over all of creation and I'm the one who sits sovereign over the entirety of the nation. So what I want to do here is I want to just summarize this showdown and we're going to go, we're going to go right in the middle. We're going to go backwards and then we're going to go forwards. So Elijah issues this prophetic decree and he says, it's not going to rain And then there is a drought that hits the land. And this is what we talked about last week in 1 Kings chapter 17. In the beginning of chapter 18, Elijah jumps back on the scene at the word of the Lord because God says it's time. It's time to finish what we started here. Now, why did it take three and a half years? I have no idea. But there was something that God was doing in that space of three and a half years. And like God, I would assume that there were probably many things that were happening in that space of time. Like it wasn't just one thing, that God was doing something in the structure of the kingdom and God was doing something of bringing the people to a place of utter desperation where they could actually then hear. And he was probably doing something in the place of preparation in Elijah himself because of the nature of the intensity that he was going to exert in the confrontation against Ahab. And really not just against Ahab, right? Right? Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So it was really the showdown that Elijah was confronting actual principalities on a demonic level. Let me just pause right here because I might be losing some of you if your church tradition and your church Bible studies never taught you that we actually live in a spiritual reality. Ephesians chapter 6 lets us know that most of the things that are aggravating us and opposing us and coming against us both on a, on, a, on a personal level, in our family system, in the spheres of society that you operate in, and in the world at large, that there is a spiritual battle that is going on. And if you don't understand that, a lot of life won't make sense, and a lot of what I'm going to read today won't make sense. But friends, you have an enemy. The humanity has an enemy, and the enemy does not like you, he hates you because you represent everything that was, that was taken from him. You represent everything that he wants to be but never could be that he tried to be by usurping and stealing authority. You represent that. You represent God because you're made in the image of God. And the enemy, like the enemy is the embodiment of evil and hatred that stands diabolically opposed to the very existence of who God is, right? So if God is a God of life, the enemy is going to embody death. If God is a God of truth, because truth is what liberates us and brings us into the life of God, the enemy is going to be the embodiment of falsehood and deception and lying. This is just biblical worldview 101. We didn't get here by accident. We got help, and we got help by way of, the enemy himself. So Elijah is now released by the authority of God to go and to confront Ahab. And this is where you pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 18. And let me see where I want to pick this up. Uh, let's, let's pick this up here at, let's pick it up at verse 20. There's a lot of narrative that I'm skipping through because there's, there's some points that I really want to get to that I want to lean in on. So Elijah says to Ahab, hey, call everybody in the nation. Call all of your, just get your whole posse together. It's going down. Ahab's like, sweet, been waiting for this. So verse 20 says, so Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets. Now what you need to know is the previous verse says when he says the prophets, we're talking about actually 850 prophets of Baal. Four hundred and fifty for bail and four hundred for a share. They rolled deep. Like you have to see. Like imagine, imagine anybody and everybody who occupied a seat of authority or power in Colorado Springs, from the mayor to the city council to the county commissioners to school boards to principals and administrators to I mean whatever arena. Just imagine eight hundred and fifty of the city's leaders who were all given over to wickedness and evil. Imagine what kind of culture that would create in a place. Uh, Imagine the consequence, the fallout and the consequence. Like here's what you have to understand. Last week when we talked about this widow who lived in the region of Sidon, who was ruled over by Ahab and Jezebel, all of the water and the food supply, economics are affected by righteousness or wickedness. The food we eat. The kind of education we get, the strength of marriages, sexual confusion, all of these things. I mean, we could drill all the way down and we could create an inventory of the cascading consequences that are there on a societal level, depending on whether or not you have righteous leaders that are leading in spaces, whether or not you have people that are advocating wicked worldviews. There is a fruit. There is a fruit. Your worldview will produce a fruit. So Elijah rolls up against 850 of the city's ruling leaders who have given themselves over to Baal. Verse 21, Elijah went before the people. So there is this distinction. There are prophets of Baal and Asherah, and then there are the people. And the people... In a lot of ways, you would sit back and say, it's not the people's fault. They're pawns. They're victims of this. But look at what Elijah says. Elijah went before the people and he says, how long will you waver between two opinions? The actual transliteration in the Hebrew is, how long will you limp along? How long will you limp along? Like you're not standing firm. You're unstable. Right? One, one, one week, you're, you're limping over towards bail because you think bail can help you and and when that doesn't help you maybe you limp over to God because you think that God maybe can help you and here's what Elijah says prophetically he confronts this neutrality and that's part of the role of the prophetic by the way the prophetic I believe nowadays is not just relegated to one person or one office there is a dimension of the prophetic nature of God and Jesus that is available to every believer in God like, you need that. You need that thing inside of you that comes from the Holy Spirit and that comes from the word of truth that, is, that has the courage and the power of God to confront duplicity and deception and to confront demonic and the darkness. Like, you got to see the pattern here because when Elijah says, guys, how long are you going to waver between these two opinions? He's saying, you have agency here. You're complicit. You have a role in what's happening in, this, in the culture of your society. You're not, you're not just pawns to what the government decides they want to do. This is what Elijah is saying to the people of Israel. You can stand up and you can say, no, this is ungodly. No, this is unrighteous. No, we're not going to worship the gods of Baal. We, we have a history here. Uh, we, we've got a covenant reality in God that we're going to hold to and be faithful to, regardless of the consequence. That's what Elijah is proposing to the people of Israel. You have agency by the power of God. Now, I would imagine that at this point in Israel's history, I would imagine that things are extremely bleak. Would you agree with that? Would you agree that there are certain situations in life that from the natural mind, just looking at it, things just seem absolutely impossible? And when it's there's there's two types of different personalities, I think. There are some people like myself, when you look at something that's impossible, it actually energizes you. You're like, sweet, Enneagram H just activated. I'm like, tell me it can't be done. Tell me, please, please, tell me it can't be done. But then there are other types of personalities that they just fold in and they just allow discouragement and despair to take over. And by the way, uh, we're we're not just talking about, you know, Enneagram 8s versus everybody else. We're talking about just the reality of when things don't change over the course of time, they sap faith and life and strength out of us. I would imagine that's where a lot of the people were at. They, They lacked the will and the strength to resist the tide of opposition, that was going on in that hour. Listen to the response in verse 21. He says, if God is God, serve him. If Baal is Baal, serve him. And the people said nothing. It's like they're frozen in compromise. Verse 22, then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450. So let me summarize. Here's what he says. Guys, this is how we're gonna do this. Over here, all of you 850 people, I want you to grab one bull. I want you to build an altar and I want you to throw that bull on there. And he's like, and then what I want you to do is I don't want you to set fire to it yet. Because what I'm going to do is after you're done with that, I'm going to build my own altar. And what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to take the altar that was actually established by God for the people. And I'm going to repair that altar. And the question for each and every one of us today is what is the state of your altar? What is the state of your altar? What what do you mean, Pastor Jade? What what, what does that mean? It means where is the place in your life where worship and devotion to the living God is central? Where is the place and the time in your life where you would say, this is the place where, where the power of God is invited to take up residence, to take up occupancy, to take up primary authority in my life, do you have an altar in your life? Do you have a place where you worship beyond Sunday morning? Like, I want to believe that there is an altar that is established here at New Life Midtown, right? Like, I would hope that when people come in here that you go, I don't know what it is. I've been to a dozen churches around this city. I, I've grown up in church for a long time, and I just know that there's something of the presence, the tangible presence of God. God is in that place, Do you know why that is? That's not circumstance. It's not arbitrary. It happens because there is a people over the course of time that say, we're not going to bow to compromise. We're not going to try to be slick and trendy, and we're not going to just try to build a church off of Instagram clips, and we're not going to just lower the bar all the way down to get more people in. We are going to be about the worship of Jesus at our core, right? That's an altar. That's an altar. And God's presence is attracted to the worship that comes at an altar. Moms and dads, establish an altar in your family. Build an altar. Invite your children. Invite your family. It might have to be small at first, but just make sure that that altar is intact where devotion can take place on a family level. So Elijah repairs the altar. And so this is is so comical to me. Watch what happens. Uh, verse, verse 26 So they took the bull given to them and they prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us! They shouted, but there was no response. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them, and he said, Shout louder. Surely he is a God. Uh, perhaps he's deep in thought, or, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Like, he he needs you to exert more energy. He needs you to get more frenetic. He needs you to get more radical. Listen, guys, God doesn't need us to get radical in ourselves in order to attract him. Now, let me make this differentiation. Watch this. There are times where God will invite you into things that look radical. There are times that God will invite you into demonstrations of faith and obedience that are inconvenient. And they may feel radical, but you don't have to go conjuring up some sense of radicality in order to attract God. God is always near. God is always near. God is always working on your behalf. And God has the exact strategy of obedience and faith that if you will just step into that, God will do radical things on your behalf. But you don't have to make it happen in yourself and call it faith right and so they begin cutting themselves and they're just exert this is this is exhausting when i think about the level of theatrics that these poor prophets of baal are going through like they begin cutting their bodies in this demonic sense of worship to try to move their their god and so elijah says guys enough he calls the people of israel over Builds the altar, digs a trench around it, slaughters a bull, throws it on top of the altar. And then he says, guys, I want you to take four of the biggest jars that you can find. And I want you to take those four jars and pour water on the altar. Like we're going to make sure there's no stone unturned here. We're going to make sure there is no questionable, no reasonable doubt in anyone's head. So they pour four big, massive jars of water all over the altar. And he goes, do it again. So they do it again. Imagine just the time and the energy it takes to where they get in that water. They're on the top of a mountain. You ever think about that? Like those jokers have got to go all the way down the mountain, get get to the brook, and they're in a drought. Where is this water coming from? I digress. I don't want to chase that rabbit. It was difficult. They do it three times. After the second time, Elijah's like, do it again. And so they get to the point where, and by the way, I'm just thinking, dude, water is expensive right now, buddy. Which I could, if I really were undisciplined, I could chase the rabbit of how worship is always expensive. But we're not going to go there today. Okay, so we have got, we've got 12 massive vats of expensive water poured out on to this offering. And here's what Elijah prays. I love this. I love this. Uh, Let's look right here at verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. This is a throwback to last week. Let it be known that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, your authorized representative, and I have done all of these things at your command. He's not out there flying solo. He's not maverick. He's not rolling rogue and renegade. He's not just, you know, oh, I think it'd be a great idea to just confront 850 demonic priests. He is under the protection of the authority of the command of God. So look at verse 37. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you are Lord. Number one, answer me. What is the motivation? What is the motivation of your prayer? What is the motivation of your radical faith and obedience? What's the motivation? Here's what's Elijah Number one, God, I want you to be reestablished as Yahweh Jehovah God over all of Israel. I want you to be reestablished. I want your throne and your authority to release a, a culture of flourishing. I want to see Pride Rock flourish again. Like, Pride Rock? What just happened here? It's a Lion King throwback. Like, just, okay, just really, really simple. Pride Rock under Mufasa, beautiful. Pride Rock under Scar, awful, right? Connect the dots, guys. This is what Elijah is saying. He's like, I want life. I want the economic system to thrive under God. I want the religious system to thrive under God. I want marriages and families and children and identity to thrive under God. And there's only one way for that to happen. And that is for God to be established in his authority and rulership over the nation. And the second thing, he says this. He goes, I want them to know that you're God. And number two, I want them to know that you're turning their hearts back again. Here's what you need to understand. The power of God is never, it's not a toy. It's not for us. It's not entertainment. The power of God is demonstrated to turn the hearts of wayward people back to a loving father. This is what Elijah understands. And here's what happens. The fire of God, verse 38, the fire of the Lord Insert from fire, I want you to put power, because they're synonymous. What God is doing is God is demonstrating that there is no power on the earth or in the heavens that is remotely close to the power of God. So then the fire of the Lord, the power of God fell, burned up the sacrifice, burned up the wood, burned up the stones, burned up the soil, and also licked up this expensive water in the trench, and then everyone fell down. The word prostrate there is proskuneo, which means to worship. Like the power of God elicited worship, and they said, the Lord our God is God. All right, heres I'm just going to fly now, okay? Number one, friends, you need the power of God in your life. You need the power of God in your life. Like at some point, if you've not been there already, you're going to bump up into not only your own limitation, but you're going to bump up to the limitation of a powerless religious structure, like, I, man, I just don't have time to pull all this apart. But if wherever you've been at in God, in the life of your Christianity, if, if, if you're not learning that there is a power from God that is available to empower you to live a kind of Christian life that you could never live outside of him, you're not really getting the full gospel. What you're getting is a form of self help humanism that if I just learn enough, study enough, meditate enough, and do the right things, I'm going to be okay and I won't need God. It is called a form of godliness that is denying the power that is available to you. And I don't care, it could be finances, it could be health. Um, it it could be a breakdown in a friendship, it could be someone that went sideways in a business deal and now you're trying to lead the the business on your own. It might be solutions that you need to problems in your own vocational space. Whatever the issue is, friends, you will come to a place where you recognize your impotency and you recognize your limitation and you will realize, God, if you don't come through, I'm not going to make it. You need the power of God. Our culture today needs the power of God. We don't need more cute services. We don't need more human ideas to get more people in buildings. We need the power of God. That's what we need. It's the power of God that transforms character. It's the power of God that turns people that were under the oppression of the devil and they will come out of that by the freedom of God and will live lives of liberty. It is you need the power of God. And I could sit here and talk with you for another two hours and just try to milk this thing, but I'm going to leave that right there. I hope that you understand that you need something that is beyond your ability. So now let's talk for a few minutes on how do we get that. Because it would be be really awful for me to sit here and say, you need the power of God and say, but too bad, you can't have it. Everybody go home, have a happy Thanksgiving. That's, That's just cruel. You need the power of God. And here's the good news. Because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, there's the gospel. Because of what God has poured out in his spirit, there's our now day reality. The power of God is available to you. All right, let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 17. We're going to look at verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he said, Leave here and turn east and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. Verse 4, You will drink from the brook, and I have directed ravens to supply you with food. Verse 5, look at this. So he did what the Lord had told him. So he did what the Lord had told him. Look at verse eight. Let's skip to verse eight. I'm gonna be all over this junk. Then the word of the Lord came to him. So now he's been hanging out. He's a homeless man, camping out by the river. The river dries up because they're in a drought. And then God shows up and in verse eight, the word of the Lord came to him again. He says, now go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there for I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Look at verse 10. So he went. These are very important phrases, right? So he did what the Lord told him, verse 5. So he went, verse 10. Here's point number one. You want to walk in the power of God, the key to the power of God is obedience. The key to the power of God in your life. You cannot walk in disobedience and expect the power of God to flow in your life or through your life. It's impossible. It's impossible. You can't. Now, here's the good news. It's available for you. Here's the hard reality that the power of God only comes through faithful, radical, immediate obedience to God. If you look throughout all of the great men and women of God throughout scriptures, you will find that they have this one solitary thing in common. From from Elijah to Abraham, to David, to Deborah, to Samson, to Samuel, it doesn't matter who, pick a person they all had radical obedience to God. And as long as they were walking in obedience, obedience kept them uh, underneath the, the flow of God's power. Obedience pulls you into alignment of the power of God. Are, are you guys, Are you? come on, come on church. Are you guys with this? All right, it's like good form. It's like good mechanics. It's like good stance. It's like good technique. Like, what, what, whatever analogy you need to apply this to your life, obedience is alignment. Alignment is where your power flows. All right, so many of you guys know, you guys have been walking with me for the past four months. You know, I had this turf toe injury, you know, in and out of a boot. By the way, anybody and everybody has got a foot and a leg injury in the house, be healed in the name of the Lord. I'm done with this. Man, we're, no more. This is not going any further. So on Friday, I had this, this electroshock therapy, apparently, that is, is supposed to do wonders. Let me tell you, this, this, the verdict is still out on whether or not this is from heaven or hell. I just, I'm not sure right now. All I know is they throw these little pads up on different parts of your body, and apparently the, the body is not communicating with each other. In layman's terms, the body, I I have so been jacked up and out of alignment and overcompensating that from my toe to my ankle uh, to my shin to my knee to my hip and to my lower back, they're all out of alignment, so they're not communicating, i.e. there's no power that is flowing through because they're out of alignment, Spiritual maturity is the lifelong process of learning how to obey God. You need to get this one, right? Your spirit, spiritual maturity is not about a position. I cannot tell you how many pastors that hold, or deacons or elders, or you, you name it. Your position does not qualify you for spiritual maturity. People that are gifted, people that pray in tongues, people that flow in the prophetic, I love all of that. I love it. I need it. We need it. But those are not qualifiers for maturity. You want to find someone who's mature? You will find someone who's obedient. You will find someone who is working out the yoke of obedience in the daily quiet disciplines of everyday life. That's where you'll find somebody who's mature. Which means this. It means spiritual maturity is a lifelong process of learning how to grow in obedience. And here's the good news. The good news is your capacity for obedience can grow. It's a muscle. It's a muscle. You didn't realize that, did you? You do now, so there's no excuse. Your (laughs) obedience muscle can grow, all right? Okay, here's the next thing. Elijah finds himself in his place of obedience, radically depending on the provision of God, right? This is what God says. Go here and I'm going to feed you with ravens. Go here, I'm going to feed you by a widow. Neither of which promise a great amount of abundance or delicacy. So what is happening in this season? Remember, it's three and a half years. This is my theory. My theory is that God recognizes to get the entire nation back on track to pull something that has been entrenched this deeply in the realm of demonic forces. I I need a vessel that I can release a great amount of power through. But in God, power for freedom and deliverance, again, listen, it comes through obedience, and it comes through faith, and it comes through a kind of courage and conviction that are only established by deep encounters with the living God. So you know what's happening in those three and a half years? God is training Elijah. He's preparing him. He is enlarging and he is expanding the vessel that he can release that kind of power through on a national, cultural, socio cultural, religious level. He needs someone that can facilitate that level of intensity of power for the spiritual confrontation that he's going to go up against. So here's what he does He says, Elijah, I need to put you on a different kind of training plan because the mission determines the training. The mission determines the training. And so here's what he says. uh, I need to make sure that there's no thing that is inside of you that has the proclivity to pull you outside of this place of obedience and faith. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go after your appetites. Now, just really, really quick. Elijah becomes a prototype of Daniel and becomes a prototype of John the Baptist. Let's start with John the Baptist, then we'll work our way to Daniel, then we'll come to the table and it'll be a great day. So you have to realize that in this land that Elijah finds himself in, God drives him out to the desert. In Israel's history, the desert is the place where God is consecrating their appetite for Egypt out of them. This is what manna was all about. And if you remember that when they find themselves just in the depths of the desert... What do they do? They cry out and they go, "Why can't we go back to Egypt? At least we had cucumbers and leeks." And you guys remember the story the when the pressure of fasting consecration is applied, do you know what's pushed to the surface? The appetite of their flesh that was filled in an oppressive environment. The enemy has no problem feeding your flesh with the delicacies from the king's court as long as it means he gets to keep you in check. As long as I feed you cakes and cookies and as long as I feed you, as long as I feed you, then you're not allowed to buck the system. So you, know what he's, you know what God's doing? He's pulling Elijah out from underneath that supply. It's a life of consecration and fasting, Elijah, learn how to live not by bread alone, but learn how to live off of every word that proceeds from the mouth of God because you don't know it now, but there's coming a day when you're going to stand up and confront 850 demonic prophets and you're going to need a life of consecration to call on the fire of God to come do business, to turn an entire nation and get them back on track. John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist's assignment? He was to be a messenger, a voice crying out in the wilderness to change the entire trajectory of Israel by announcing the forthcoming of the Messiah. So what does God do? He signs him up for the school of Elijah. He's hiding out in the desert. He's underneath a priestly order, but God doesn't need a priest. God needs a prophetic voice. So he takes him out of the temple. Y'all got to walk with me here. He takes him out of the temple and throws him in the desert. Because he doesn't need a priest, he needs a prophet. He needs someone that is going to go against the grain of what common, ordinary, normal, lifeless, dead, powerless religion is doing. Because he needs power to introduce the forthcoming of the Messiah. So what does he do? He lives a lifestyle of hiddenness, consecration, and fasting. I'm going to feed you on my diet. Daniel, chapter 1. What's going on? Daniel and his three friends are in exile. And King Nebuchadnezzar wants to feed them the royal delicacies. The royal delicacies is a metaphor for you, you name it, you fill in the blank. But there are all kinds of royal delicacies today, right. right, that will satisfy our soul and our body and our mind into a place, just neutrality and compromise. Why should I care about that? I'm full Why should I care about what's going on in the schools? I'm happy. I'm content. No, you think you're content. You're asleep. So here's what Daniel says. Daniel says, you know what? I'm not going to eat from those royal delicacies. We're going to go on a diet of fasting. Test me for 10 days. We're going to drink water and eat vegetables. And they found out that Daniel and his three buddies were more astute. They were more keen. They were more powerful. They were able to interpret dreams. You know what that's called? It's called the power of God. And you know what Daniel needed in Babylon? He needed the power of God. He needed the ability to call on supernatural power to interpret dreams. He needed to be able to do war in the heavenlies. When the prince of Persia was resisting the word of the Lord, you know what he needed? He needed the power of God. And here's the good news. The power of God is available for you. It's free, but it will cost you everything. Stand with me to your feet this morning. That's it. I'm only going to have one point from my messages from now on. <laughs> Let's respond here. Would you just open up your hands? Holy Spirit. A lot of words have been spoken, some good, some not so good. We want the word of the Lord. What is it that you're saying? What is it you're breathing on? What is it you're shining your light on? What is it you're resting on? God, what are you comforting? What are you convicting? What are you healing? What are you calling us into greater faithfulness and obedience to the life of Jesus? God, stir us, provoke us, draw near to us. i just wait here for a moment. Let the Lord speak to you. Since the Lord saying that there's some of us in the room, we've just been stuck, just stuck, stuck in a rut. Some of you feel like you, in your spiritual life, you've been taken two steps forward and something happens and it just drives you back five, six, seven steps. Lord, right now, I just pray for the power of the Holy Spirit right now to just get us unstuck paradigms, belief systems, mindsets, even even the will. Lord, I believe in your word in Philippians 2, Lord, that says that it's God who works in us both to will and to do your good pleasure. God, would you awaken the will? Would you awaken, would you breathe on our desire? Resurrection life of God, resurrection power of God be at work in our lives. Father, right now, may the power of the living God be at work to thrust us into freedom. Lord, some of us are shackled right now in addictions and bondages that are so pleasurable to our eyes and our minds and our brains and our bodies and our flesh. But God, it's just, it's leaving us empty and it's leaving us angry. And I'm asking right now, the power of God bring deliverance, the power of God bring freedom. Lord, some of us are just stuck in unforgiveness and bitterness. We're angry, we're locked up, and we like it. And, Lord, I'm praying that the power of God thrust us out of bitterness and move us into healing forgiveness that brings life. Oh, Spirit of God, come. I want to invite the ministers of our table to come forward. We're going to come to the table of the Lord. Friends, I want to invite you to come and receive the body of Christ and receive the bloodshed. You can exit on the left. We're going to go row by row. Just come up here to your station and then come back into your row from the right and we will all receive of communion together. You're welcome to come forward.
3: Forgive our sin Read life into these dry and thirsty souls Generation, we are your people crying out in desperation. Open the blind eyes, unlock the deaf ears. Come to your people as we draw near, hear us from men. From heaven, hear us from heaven, hear us from heaven, hear us from heaven. from heaven Hear us from heaven Hear us from heaven.
6: The greatest demonstration of power the world has ever experienced was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He is the first fruits of what shall happen to everyone who calls themselves believers in God. And the precursor to that was an equal demonstration of power when Jesus, God himself, laid his life down. He relinquished power so that he could put himself fully into a greater power as the power of God. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, hours before his brutal death at the hands of sinful men, Jesus was gathering with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it. You can break this in your hand. It's a physical, tangible picture of God broken for the wholeness and the healing of humanity. Brothers and sisters, you may receive the body of Christ. And in like manner, he took the cup. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant that is made available for you in my blood. This is not a transaction. This is not you do better and I be nicer. This is not you do better and I'll be better to you. This is, I am going to lay down my life because God's blood in a human body is the only thing that has the power to eliminate the curse of sin off of your life. So in the name of Jesus, I want to announce to you that your sins are forgiven. Let us receive the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Ah, amen. Amen. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord. Let's sing a song of thanksgiving.
3: Praise God.
6: That another way that we experience God's power is through corporate prayer, someone agreeing with you, releasing their faith on your behalf. And if you need further prayer, we have men and women who are trusted and who are approved and appointed to agree with you in the place of prayer, and I'd like to invite you to come up. This being said, I wanna commission you back into this week to be sent ones in the name of God for the mission of God and the kingdom of God. So may the Lord bless you today. May the Lord be gracious to you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may the power of God be at work in your life and upon your life. And everything you put your hands to, may it flourish in the freedom and life of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Thanksgiving, guys. We'll see you next Sunday.